Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These feasts of faith, hope, love, expressed as prayer, stretch us. They stretch our minds, our attention span. They certainly stretch our bodies. It's astounding to think that Typically, before the peace of the Church, which occurs from Constantine the Great, equal to the Apostles, down to Theodosius, Christians, as we would say, endured these vigils every Saturday night. They were not free to run around on the dark streets of any ancient city because they were already breaking the law by assembling. Rome was a religiously syncretist and very tolerant empire. As Father Schmemann used to say, it was nothing if not ecumenist. You have a new god? You have a new goddess? Fine. Build your temple right there on that street and we'll all be very happy. Just let us know when the feast is. And yet this amazingly syncretist ecumenist empire turned on Christianity with a vengeance and made it illegal for Christians to assemble. The synaxis is what got them in trouble. And yet, even though they were doing the only thing that could put them foul of the imperial laws, Christians insisted from the beginning on assembling, as it says in the pagan records of some of the martyrdoms, in statu die, on a stated day, on a given day, we know it is Sunday, in order to perform from the standpoint of right-thinking pagans, decent pagans, their obscene and foul and loathsome rituals. Had anyone told an early Christian that you could be just as good a Christian and not go to church, he would have thought you had lost your mind. The incredible endurance and persistence of the early Christians, next to whom you and I will be judged when time has ceased to be, and the final and last judgment is given, will surely judge our wandering thoughts, our unstable emotions, our aching feet, our easily distracted minds, our unsteady hearts.
we look at the interiors of churches and we find from the beginning, sometimes rather plain but almost always rather elegant and beautiful lampadas. The Gospel of John stresses that the Savior is light. He is the light of the world. He is the light of all mankind. And in a particular way, he is strikingly the light of Christians. Surely the Lampadas replicate something profound about the experience of God by Christians. The proliferation of light, little lights all over the place, illuminating this or that, and of course practically they just are there to give light. But their symbolic significance was never lost on the church. Here we are, standing before icons that we can see because of these little lights. They are burning before the faces of our Savior, the Panagia, and the saints. They may flicker from time to time, but they come back to steadiness. They stabilize. Ancient people did not understand the chemistry of a burning wick, how it is in fact rapid oxidizing. It is the transfiguration, the transformation, the change of the wick, whatever it is, into light and heat. But although five or ten or twenty or a hundred lampadas may be burning and flickering during our services, you and I are not burning before the face of the Savior. And we are not flickering and coming back to stability. We are not hot with a love for our God, which the Greek fathers daringly termed erotic, because there was no other term available in Greek to describe the complete saturation of the human personality with love for God, which was needful if we were to overcome the critical mass of a fallen universe. It would overwhelm us with its darkness and drag us down to the abyss of hell, that place where God is not, that place where there is no neighbor. And if in my hard, cold-heartedness I do not live as if any man were my neighbor, and if I had any affection for God, then God will honor my choice, the choice not of my lips, for God does know what we know, that talk is cheap, but the choice 
of the act of living out my life. These little lampadas, then, have a function that is a lot more than lighting up a surface and letting us know what's there, or lighting up a floor so that we don't fall on our faces. They remind us of other realities, and in their own humble way they judge us. These vigils, short as they are, three hours, give or take, are nothing in comparison with the great vigils of monasteries on the holy mountain. Five hours is deemed a rather brief experience of a vigil. Eight or nine hours is beginning to get serious. And as I told you, at the monastery of Viviron, the vigil for the feast of the Dormition, the Chimesis, consumes an entire cycle of 24 hours, start to finish. That is considered the ecclesiastical equivalent of an extreme sport. But it judges us by the temper of its commitment. It's all or nothingness. It's casting everything aside, including my own feelings and uh, my own aching body, refusing to entertain any distractions, whether from within myself or from the external environment, from the now or from the memory, and to stand burning before the face of the Savior, because in Him is life, the life that the Father has, which is not life as the universe contains it, but it is a life of an utterly different and unique order. And it is that life which does not die which the Father has given to the Son and which the Son infuses into us through the holy mysteries to which we are receptive to the degree that we have been attentive to the Gospel. Everything in the Church is as linked to everything else as all our muscles and nerves are in our own human bodies. Pinch here, itch there. Touch this, feel that. And the integration not only of the various parts and tiny tissues and cells of our body, but the interface between our mind and our body our emotions and our mind and our body. No wonder they spoke of the Church as the body of Christ, and the body is the most appropriate analogy that Paul can think of. Here we are, stretched and quite possibly defeated,
by another vigil. We have been here, and in our being here, we have been radically absent at the same time. The wise Christian looks at the things that create his interior absence. What is it that draws my mind, my attention? Yes, my love. Away from the one thing needful. That then is my sin. Whatever bears me to any degree away from Christ is, as the service said some time ago, rubbish, garbage, nothing. And yet, how beguiled I can be by all that nothingness. We are clearly very seriously out of step with the modern world. Whether that modern world begins in 1492 with Columbus, or with the Age of Reason, whether it begins with Darwin, or with Einstein. We are archaic and primitive to the point of being absurd. But was it not a second century Latin father who said, Credo, qui absurdum est? I believe because it's absurd. If the beautifully established and organized Roman Empire of his time was what was rational, obvious, reasonable, then please, please, please give me something absurd to save me from this, this dead order, from this lifeless reasonableness. He was right. Almost 2,000 years later, Dostoevsky said, in a Russia of the 1870s and 80s that was just beginning to feel the impact of modern science, if a highly trained mathematician could prove to me with utter logic that Christ and the truth contradict one another, I would prefer Christ to the truth. What did he mean? Of course, we Christians are already thinking, but Christ is the truth. Yes, we know that. But think of what Dostoevsky is saying. The kind of truth that can be derived, 
mathematically by some scientist has no life in it. It is dead truth. It is the truth of the morgue, of the cadaver. So if Christ is not truth of that species, of that order, of that type, so what? Stick to the one in whom is the life that the Father hath in himself, which is truly not of this world, not of this galaxy, not of any world or any galaxy. In the ninth century, however we want to parse the legend of the conversion of Russia, there are a few nuggets of hard truth that the most fervent communist was never able to dispense with. There was a great prince named Vladimir. He sent envoys around the civilized world on a kind of roving embassy to see what they've got. They go to the Jews, probably in what we today call Khazaria, south of the Caucasus. They go to the Latin world, probably somewhere between Italy and Charlemagne. And they go to the Greeks in Tsargrad, Constantinople. They come back and they say in picturesque language that they wouldn't want to be Jews or Muslims or Latin Christians for reasons that usually get a Twitter out of any Russian 101 history class. And they are indeed funny and possibly even meant to be. But then the envoys become very sober because they have attended a liturgy in Hagia Sophia and you can still walk through the door through which they walk and stand in the space and look at the walls they saw. They said that the liturgy of those people was fairer than the liturgy of any people elsewhere on the earth whom they encountered. That when they were in that liturgy, they honestly did not know whether they were in heaven or on earth. And they said, we cannot forget that beauty. A thousand years later, Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the world. Not science, not a better national health service, not electing the right people, not having an anointed sovereign who knows how to behave himself, but beauty. From those two intuitions in the ninth and at the, in the nineteenth century, from the envoys of Vladimir to Dostoevsky, 
There is a continuous apprehension of what is important about being human. It is the intuition that however you want to define God, corner him with words, package him, in the end, the fundamental truth of Christ is that he is beauty, he is absolute beauty, he is beauty itself. And in comparison with him, nothing is beautiful. And that was how men and women were able to endure vigils of many hours, liturgies, processions, and lengthy prayers at home. For they were tasting with their ears and their eyes and their whole being the absolute beauty that is God. Father George Florovsky was the greatest Slavist of the 20th century. He was a theologian and a dogmatician and he was everything else. But he was the greatest teacher of Slavic's history in the world throughout much of the 20th century. He spoke in an essay of the strange intellectual silence of medieval Russia. We have no essays, no treatises, no decrees from all those many centuries that bear comparison with anything either from the Latin West or the Greek East. We have practically nothing at all. And yet we know from their, their remains and their history that they were a most intelligent and creative people, on a par with the others. In fact, when the granddaughter of Vladimir, the Grand Princess Anna, married the King of France in the 900s, she was literate in two languages, reading and writing, and the King of France was unable to sign his own name. What, Father Florovsky asks, is the explanation for this? His answer is that we are looking in the wrong drawer if we are looking for treatises, philosophy, logic, essays, and the rest of it. He says, Russia was hardly silent. Look, he said, at their icons. Among the greatest achievements of any culture of any time. In iconography, the Greeks found apt pupils amongst the Russians and some of their creations are among the greatest passages of art in the history of the world. That was what Russia spoke, not logic, not Aristotle. It spoke art, it spoke the icon, it spoke the language called beauty. The envoys told St. Vladimir, for we cannot forget that beauty 
A thousand years later, Dostoevsky says, beauty will save the world. What was it they could not forget? What was it that will save the world? It is Christ. The West, imprisoned in its rationalism, in its philosophical, scholastic theology, does not know God as beautiful. They have lists of what he is and what he isn't, but all the lists are subjected to the test of Aristotelian syllogisms. The West is a culture of genius. It will get us to the moon and often get us back. That is because at a certain phase in its history it expended an amazing amount of time figuring out how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. It's very unlikely that had Constantinople not weakened and fallen, that the Byzantines would have got us to the moon. On the other hand, they may well have bequeathed our cold culture with a liturgy through which we would have gotten not to the moon, but to eternal life. May God grant that as the fruit of every bout, every match, because we can use, we are entitled to use athletic terms for these vigils, every match of vigil where we are pitted against an opponent, and you know to whom I refer, we will be left pondering things like this, the ultimate questions the questions that really count. This culture, because of the way it is structured, in its religious communities, likes to think that Jesus is the answer. After all, that's what the bumper sticker says. The Russian theologian Father Schmemann was right when he said that, in fact, Jesus is the question. Amen.